everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast with myself, Sebastian Kaplan from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and my good friend from Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Seb. Hi, everybody. So for today's episode, we have a couple of things in mind. One, we want to discuss something known as the four processes of motivational interviewing. And we also want to do a bit of a demonstration or a role play where uh, I will be playing the uh, clinician and uh, Glenn will be a uh, client of mine uh, and we will be talking about smoking. So that, that is uh, something to look forward to for today's session. But before we uh, go on with that, Glenn, uh, maybe you could share with the audience how to find us and how to contact us. Okay. Yeah. So... For you tweeters, it's at change, change Talking. For your Facebook people, it's uh, Talking to Change. And for conversations with us directly or questions or feedback, and we appreciate the feedback we've been getting already, podcast at glenhines.com. Okay. Uh, on today's episode are the four processes. The four processes are... Uh, a structure that describes how motivational interviewing flows. Bill and Steve took, I think, great care in how they described motivational interviewing. They didn't describe it in terms of stages. And, you know, the, the risk of thinking about an approach like motivational interviewing in stages is it, it implies that it goes one step after the other after the other in this sequential format for all people. And, you know, as we know, that's just not how change works. So they did describe it using the phrase processes, you know, to capture some of the core tasks in, in an MI conversation. And the first task that, that, that comes about is called engagement. And so Glenn, why don't you take that one and tell us more about it? Yeah, well, if you think about engagement, it, it, it's, it's almost like it's self-explanatory in the idea that it's it's about that connecting with that, the development of the first stages of any relationship where if we take the metaphor of the dance, it's it's the walking across the dance floor and, and asking your partner, potential partner, for a dance. And if we stay with that metaphor, it's, it's thinking about what is it that needs to happen for the individual we're asking to want to come out and dance with us. It's, it's, so it's all going to be about how we are and how we approach them and how they feel treated by us. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's that most basic level, it's that social exchange that we have with them. Do they, do we make them feel welcome? Do they feel safe? Do we approach them in a, with a warmth that they can experience? You know, do are we making eye contact? Are we smiling? Are we interested? And that idea that in a, a therapeutic or a helping relationship, but it, the same principles apply that, you know, that. It's recognizing, you know, who is this person? Why are they here? What is it they might want? What is it they might need? And what is it I can be doing that will assist them to feel as safe and as welcome as possible before we start looking at the material or or before we dive right in to what it is Mm -hmm. that I'm here to do or what it is they're here to get. Right. It it also goes much more than some of that early chit-chat that occurs. Of course depending on the clinic structure or depending on the work setting, there, there may be a bit of a downtime or, or time where the, the practitioner and the client are together in the same location, but they're not yet sort of sealed into the conversation. And, and 
I feel like it's it, it's important to distinguish engagement from an MI standpoint with just some friendly banter. You know, how was the parking when you came in or what's the weather like outside or, you know, which not to say you shouldn't do that, but just really emphasizing some of those elements that you described there about nonverbals, for instance, you know, what, what kind of eye contact does the practitioner use? What's the body language? Is there a, a sense that the practitioner is really locked in to this experience, whether it's a first encounter or whether it's the 50th encounter that that there is a, a sense that the practitioner is fully present with the, the client in the room. And, and you know, things like eye contact, certainly in, in medical settings, uh, is, is no safe assumption with the use of, you know, the electronic medical records that a lot of medical practices have now. It's so easy to have a patient in the room and not look at them. Uh, and to have your attention focused on a computer screen or a keyboard. And so with engagement, we're really wanting to deliver both verbal and nonverbal messages that we're, we're all in. Right. So that, there's nothing as, as, as off-putting as when you're in talking to your GP or your physician that they're looking at the computer and writing notes as you talk. Yep. I think that was really important the way you were describing that, being present to the client and present to the client's experience and being there with them. That idea of establishing that mutually trusting relationship through that mm -hmm. two-way process that that you're there for them and recognizing their experience of, of them for you. Yes, yes. And it's also important to say, I think, that it's not just the first task that then you leave or right. that you, you, you finish. It's and and the um can't use a visual demonstration on a podcast, but the way that it's been described often in, in the in, in the literature and, and in trainings is uh, almost like a staircase, right. and an engagement is that that bottom staircase that everything rests on top of, and so engagement is something that that runs throughout the conversation, throughout the relationship. It's always something that the practitioner has an eye towards. Okay, it's almost like that ongoing assessment in the conversation. How's the client experiencing this? How's the client mm -hmm. experiencing me now? Right. Are, are they still yes. with me? Am I still with them? And where it sounds like what you're saying is that, that when the practitioner notices maybe the client stepping back, the recursive nature of the process is, is that we maybe step back down to the engaging to reconnect before we go anywhere else in the dance, reconnect and start dancing again rather than mm -hmm. just getting on with the dance. Yeah, so we've taken hold of our partner again. We're engaged. What do we do next then? Seb, where do we go with that? Right. Well, the, the second process is called focusing. And here's where, uh, well, in other, you know, counseling practices or in other healthcare settings, you might have terms like agenda setting. And it, it's, it's a similar idea. It's basically wanting to have a collaborative discussion around what would be most helpful for our time together whether it's a single session, whether it's an ongoing relationship, but some level of attention paid to uh, how can I be most helpful to you? And in some instances, it might seem obvious. And it, you, know, you might work in a, in a diabetes clinic. And so there, there's certain uh, change targets, I suppose, that will be almost a given. But there's so many ways and so many directions that someone can take towards a change that it is important to spend some time thinking about how 
this particular individual would would get to that place of improved health around diabetes. Right. And and I suppose that in another sense too that if it's an ongoing relationship, what happens from one session to another, there may be a lot that goes on in the life of a of a person, and and so they might come in, and even though they're they're returning, there's a return visit at the diabetes center. Maybe there's something really significant that happened in their life, and and that's what's most pressing. Now, whether the practitioner is qualified or comfortable in, in engaging in a conversation around whatever that new topic might be, that that maybe is another topic to consider. But the the practitioner should always be interested in what seems most relevant and most important for for the client and to, to make that uh, an explicit conversation. Yeah, and, and, and you raise that an important issue where sometimes clients will present with uh, issues that maybe aren't areas of expertise or aren't areas that the practitioner has any particular focus on and their concern is, you know, this isn't this isn't my job. I think sometimes it's, it's about appreciating what we've already talked about in, in relation to the spirit of motivation living is what if I was to trust this person to maybe help them identify where and who and how, whatever this issue is. It's not my responsibility to work out the financial difficulties that they're having that they're presenting to me in a diabetic clinic. But it's important that that I acknowledge to them that that in itself is having a bearing on perhaps how they their diet or their diabetes control and that by acknowledging that, the focus shifts for a moment to that issue. That it's and it's acknowledging so in some ways that because of the financial difficulties that's getting in your way to manage your diabetes. So when we talk about evoking, it's about exploring. Well, you know, the where else, the who else, the how else might you be able to be assisted by that, and that the practitioner guides them towards the support that they might need outside of the diabetic clinic, and then brings it back to the the diabetes issue. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the focus, and, and again, the recursive nature of the the processes is that as we go along, I often think of it in, in, on the map term, I've mentioned a few times, that when we get to certain points along the journey, there may be bumps on the road. And for me, that's where the focus shifts slightly. Okay, the end of the journey is the main focus, but from time to time, we have to take smaller focuses, which are, in this instance, the financial difficulties or getting the kids to school, gets in, in our way of doing our early morning testing or her husband does this. And we just spend a bit of time helping focus on how that influences the bigger issue and how help how to get over that bump to move on to the next thing. Yes, I, and I suppose your use of the dance metaphor would be... Uh, interesting to kind of weave throughout this and maybe it's it's the it's requesting the song and and or deciding what what the dance will be about or uh what the music will be uh between the two partners and and coming to some uh agreement about that it's there may be occasions where the practitioner doesn't agree or or may feel like you know that their energies would be better spent focusing on, let's say, if it, back to the example of a diabetes clinic, maybe there's, a, there's the person's diet perhaps is really problematic from, from a health standpoint, and perhaps the client is 
much more interested in discussing increasing their exercise. Hmm. You know, not that that's a bad thing, and, and certainly anybody working in the world of, of diabetes care would would support that. But um, there there are times when practitioners might feel caught in a position if they're trying to adhere to motivational interviewing, but may feel quite strongly that there's a rationale to focus on something that the client isn't necessarily uh, emphasizing. Right. So, so what would you be recommending for people who find themselves in that situation? Well, I think I would, I would often do is sort of settle back into the core elements of the spirit. So first of all, Again, it is a collaboration. This isn't about me as the practitioner telling them what to do or being the expert on themselves. I think that being honest about what the concerns might be or about the rationale for why diet would perhaps be more impactful in that particular situation. And the practitioner should feel comfortable in, in being honest about that. Ultimately, though, there is the awareness and the acknowledgement that the clients leave our offices or our clinics or our hospitals, and they're the ones that, that live their lives, and they're the ones that make the choices day in, day out, and how they're going to spend their time and how they're going to focus their energies. And, and so I, I would always uh, caution people and, and certainly caution myself in doing the clinic work, clinical work that I do. To, to refrain from ever saying you really have to do X or Y or Z. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I think if, if the practitioner states what their, what their preferences might be or what the rationale is to focus on one area and the client's just not ready to do that or the client might prefer focusing elsewhere, that, that you engage in a conversation, you explore that, you try to understand why that is as, as best as possible. So in some ways, it's 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 more beneficial if the practitioner considers how can I help this person do what they're willing to do at this point towards achieving the bigger goal, rather than saying you have to do it in this order. Work mm -hmm. work with their existing motivation, work with their existing confidence, uh, right? And trust that if if these small changes have any benefit, then progress has been made on the ultimate well-being of this client and that potentially the experience of having a practitioner who is willing to help them in a way that they find useful, that that will increase the likelihood of them coming back and in itself then enhances the opportunity that when the practitioner shares their opinions or ideas or concerns in the future that the client will choose to take them on board because of how they've experienced them in previous contact and and how they felt about how this person is as a practitioner with them exactly yeah exactly. so the relationship is very very important and if we it's think if critical if we just think about our own relationships about who are the people we have in our lives that we feel safe with trust who are the people we whose opinions we listen to why do we listen to them and it's again it's going to come down to how they we experience them and that essentially is the foundation of what we've been exploring over the first two podcasts is, you know, it's recognizing people don't change with doctors, social workers, nurses, psychiatrists. In many ways, it's recognizing people change in the company of another person. It's mm. the it's the people, the person element of the contact that is probably having the most influence. Nice, nice. 
I suppose moving along with the processes. So once a focus has been established, the next process is called evocation. The calling out, the drawing out of, and I suppose that's the that's the the thing that, that probably sets motivation development apart from other counseling styles, is that it seeks to draw out the way forward, the ideas, the solutions, the concerns from the client, so that really again celebrating the expertise of the person themselves in their own lives and recognizing that chances are before this client ever came to see us they've tried to resolve this issue for themselves or within the company of other people and one of the things we can be curious about is you know what 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 have they learned what have they done what ideas do they have um, so the evocation is when we've identified what the focus is and we've agreed what the focus of the conversation will be, we can then simply ask, so what would work? Or what would work for you? Or what have you done before? Or how do you want to move this forward? So it's, it's what ideas do you have? So it's reaching out to the client to invite them to share with us their own ideas. Right. And it's also, well, the, the term evocation is or evoking is would be familiar to people that listen to the first episode. You know, it is, it is such a uh, I suppose a bedrock of, of motivational interviewing. It shows up both in the MI spirit and again here in the four processes. We are just about always in search for drawing out ideas from the client, and and so as far as the the evoking process in MI, it's it's about it's also about this term called change talk. Right. Right. So this is a, a key term in motivational interviewing. It is one of the distinguishing features, arguably, of, the, of motivational interviewing uh, and, and other approaches, helping helping approaches. Uh, we are interested in, uh, in in structuring the conversation in such a way that the client is, in essence, making the arguments for why they should change. What are their reasons to do so? What are the things that they are after? What are they in search of? Or at the same time, what are they trying to eliminate or what are their worries about maintaining the the current trajectory that they're on? So the client's gonna talk themselves into change? Exactly, exactly. So we're... Yeah, it, it's recognizing that, you know, that, and again, this, this goes back to the spirit in a lot of ways, but it's not our job to change them. Our job is to help enhance their motivation for change, but ultimately we want them to be the ones to to take that on and and uh, and and to to make the case for why change would be right for them at this point in time. And I imagine for a lot of people listening that 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 again is going to seem quite strange that somehow that here I am working with someone with an alcohol-related problem. And you're telling me that they're going to talk themselves into it. If that was the case, they would have done it before now. Mm. And um, maybe one of the things to consider is, is have they ever been asked and then listened to and understood? Mm-hmm. Have they experienced open-ended questions and affirmations about their eff- efforts to change and, and to keep themselves as well as they can under, under the circumstances? Using reflective listening as a way of communicating our desire to understand it from their perspective, the summaries to ensure that the, the conversations move in 
in a, in a way that maintains the, the connection throughout that there has been that engagement. There has been the focus on what is it that the client will find helpful. And then the trust and the belief in this person to find a way forward, whatever that might be. And again, it's, I think it's back to that inches more than miles. What if we were looking about the, the small steps towards progress rather than the big steps where they have to have stopped drinking or they have to, their blood sugars have to be at a certain level within a certain period of time. That we work with what they're capable of, work with what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. There's also something that I think just about any listener could uh, relate to, which is the experience of being a uh, feeling two ways about a particular decision, right? The, or the experience of ambivalence, which mm-hmm. is a, a term that that we we use quite a bit in thinking about motivational interviewing. Uh, so you know, if if you have somebody who who say has a, a problem with alcohol. And they they go see a, a, a counselor or a doctor, whoever they might see, and, and they are 100% fully committed to change. Now's the time. Uh, that's that's not really somebody who who would benefit from or, or really needs a motivational interviewing style conversation. They're walking in the door ready for change, and they're they're walking in wanting to know how to do it. As as most practitioners could can attest, people are often caught in some level of ambivalence around around change, whether it's around alcohol or, or other kinds of changes. One of the fairly predictable phenomenon that, that humans will uh, exhibit is if they are feeling ambivalent about a particular change and someone, whether it's a practitioner or a friend or a loved one, approaches them in a in a way, in a, in a sort of confrontational way, in a way to try to convince them that, you know what, you have to do this or you really need to change, it's quite predictable that people will very often take the other side of the argument where they might push push back a little bit, either push back actively and, and sort of get into an active argument, or maybe in that passive way where they just sort of settle in, they don't say much, they might nod and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. And, and then leave really with just thinking about all the counter arguments to why they should change, which is really where, you know, sort of where, where Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick have kind of the place where they developed MI from is, is that human uh, phenomenon. And, and so how do we engage someone in a conversation that doesn't invite them to think about the reasons to keep drinking or the reasons to keep smoking it's it's to engage them and invite them to consider why they they why they should change. So human beings are fickle creatures. We don't oh, yes. really like being told what to do. Yeah, and it just made me think of uh, I think it was Malcolm in the Middle. I heard it the first time was you're not the boss of me. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, and it's that idea of we don't like being told what to do, even if it's the right answer. And somehow what you're describing there is, is that in ambivalence, whatever side of the argument the practitioner takes naturally the client takes the other one which would seem to suggest then that what we're exploring with people is what if we were to flip the conversation where the practitioner became curious about why they are the way they are without trying to change them allowing for that fickleness where 
the client will then perhaps take the opposite point of view, which is towards change, which is where the change talk comes from. And, and then through reflections and open-ended questions, we can encourage them to elaborate, building that on that, I learn who I am as I hear myself speak, essentially talking themselves into being different. Being listened, exactly. being listened into yeah. different, being being listened into change. Well, yes, yeah. yes, that's the way to put it. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, the four processes. You know, I'm sure I am convinced that they'll come up over and over and over again because they are quite complex in the sense of how wide and how often we actually can investigate the use of these four processes. But for the purpose of this. Podcast. I'm just wondering, you know, there we are. We've, we've engaged, we've focused, we've evoked. Where we go next? Oh, we go to the, the the last process, which is planning. And planning is uh, is actually something that you may not always do when you're doing motivational interviews. You know, you could imagine that someone, a client, would come in and uh, and the practitioner uh, engages with them from the very beginning throughout the encounter, that they arrive at a, in a collaborative way, that they arrive on a, at a focus point uh, where they begin to explore the reasons why someone would want to change, the, the, you know, the, the, the drawbacks for maintaining the, the current path. And, and that sort of conversation could really lead someone into their own you know, taking the taking the baton, so to speak, and and moving forward with change that doesn't really require a, a structured plan. Hmm. Um, in fact, a, a lot of clients, as as I'm sure the listeners know, have have made attempts to change before, have been, had successful attempts to change before. They may know a lot about how they they would. Change. So it's not necessarily a requirement uh, in motivational interviewing or. To, to, to you know to engage in that final process but but very often uh, a discussion around how someone will go about change uh, can be very helpful um, it's about uh, well and, and it's also I, I, I always feel like it's the time where a practitioner might feel tempted to to take the reins and and begin to, deliver a lot of uh, advice and feedback, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but in motivational interviewing, we, we do want to take great care in, in how we deliver feedback and how we share ideas. So it's often done, uh, planning is often done with, uh, with a starting point of what ideas do you have about how you'd go about making this change? Right hearing what the client has to say about it, hearing what their experiences are. And, and then from there, uh, really listening carefully to whether there are uh, some gaps, perhaps, that, that, a, that a client might have in, in what they know about how mm. people change with, with whatever the, the change target might be. Sure. Um, or maybe even responding to explicit questions, because sometimes clients will come out and say, you know, I, I really want to make this change. I just don't know how to do it. Right. So it's almost like the planning is it's, it only happens when we are getting clear communication from the client that that ambivalence that you were describing has been resolved. They've come down on one side of the argument and they've committed to moving in a specific direction. 
Uh, and it's, I suppose a couple of things come up for me. It's, it's very often the idea of planning being the last thing we do in motivational interviewing is quite surprising for students that I work with. And I think what happens is, is people ha- are used to going in and, and creating a, a care plan or a, a direction of plan. And they, f- they hear the word plan and that's what it is. We have a care plan. This is what we're going to do. I think maybe what they're more accurately describing is that the focusing aspect of what we've been describing is, you know, what are the areas that we could be working on? What are the areas that are important to you? But what's different about the plan is that it's in focus and there's a, it's much more fluid. These can change from moment to moment, depending on where it is we're working with. Whereas with the plan, it's much more solid because there's a, there's a clarity of direction. Where the where the negotiation takes place is how the individual can find their way to that. So, from a Northern Ireland perspective, I'm living in Be- I'm living in Derry. Belfast is over seventy miles away. The client has made a decision after a conversation. I want to go to Belfast. The planning process now is: what direction do you want? What route do you want to take to get to Belfast? It's always moving towards Belfast, but we're exploring with the client: what are the routes? What are the opportunities and what are the opportun- what are the challenges that you might face on helping yourself achieve that success by arriving in Belfast, stopping drinking, stopping smoking, maintaining your diabetes care? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some another term that we use a lot in, in MI that I think comes up in, in during the planning process or fits nicely within it is something called the illicit provide illicit sequence. Um, and I know in, in the medical school that, that I work in, that they teach the students ask, tell, ask. Uh, there's a lot of ways to structure that or to describe that, that three-part sequence. But uh, it's basically the idea of first starting with the, the client, drawing out from them or eliciting from them, what ideas do you have about changing in this particular area? You follow up with uh, a reflection, of course, of that. And then... Uh, very often asking for permission to give feedback or to give ideas. Um, that's something that we, we do, uh, we, we have, we, we emphasize that quite a bit in MI, you know, you know uh, advice is given only with permission. And, and it's, again, to, to really emphasize the collaborative nature of the conversation. And, and when permission is granted, then the practitioner can offer ideas and offer suggestions, whether it's suggestions about how the clinic operates or suggestions about how other clients have made successful changes, or maybe it's a suggestion that's born from the, the literature or the research about how what, what we know about other people that have made these successful changes. And once that feedback is offered, once the advice is given, there's the final elicit, which is always tied to the idea of the client has the last say. And, and so the practitioner will ask, how does that sound to you? Or what thoughts do you have about what you've just heard? How does that fit with, with your experience? And, and so that's a, a also, again, a, a key part of, of what a planning conversation might, might be about. So there is an opportunity for the expert to bring their knowledge, their experience, their insights into the conversation but again, it's done in a way that maintains the collaborative relationship that continues to promote the autonomy of the client and recognizes the practitioner's trust in the client 
to have the final say that ultimately these are these are ideas that I think may be helpful for you. But what's really important is I'm wondering what you think about my ideas. This is what's Absolutely. worked for other people. I wonder what how that would work with you given the experiences you've had. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen it a few times as well. I think it comes from a business perspective. The idea of, of when we are planning the notion of what might be called smart goals, or uh, in motivation interviewing, there's a form known as the change plan worksheet, which invites the client to be specific about the steps, the journey, uh, to be so that from the smart perspective, that's being specific. You know, the what, the why, the how, the where. The measurable, you know, the importance of being able to track progress and to know where it is they're trying to get to. Achievable, how can they accomplish this goal? Relevant back to the notion of how important it is. Who's is this issue important for the client? And then very importantly, time bound, the idea that you know where will you be this time next week? Where will you be in a month's time? Where will you be six months' time? So that there is a tra trackable uh, process that they're not waiting until they get to Belfast before they can experience the success. That when they've gone five miles down the road, they're able to look back and see how far they've already come. And what we know is that can be very motivating. That the steps are considered progress rather than just being just the outcome itself. That's right. Right. And I suppose it's it's useful to talk about another kind of client language here, where uh, previously we used the term change talk, and, and you know discussed about how how important that is in, in the evoking process in particular. It'll come up earlier as well, uh, but but in particular in the evoking process, in the planning process, uh, well, you're certainly likely to hear change talk. Uh, you know it. it wouldn't make sense to um, it wouldn't make sense to to get into a plan if if the client isn't providing change talk in the conversation then it would be premature to start planning so you you'll certainly be hearing some change talk in, in the planning process but you'll also be listening for and and maybe inviting what we call commitment language um, you, you you'd want to find out uh well so you know what are you what are you willing to do at this point what are your what are your how how strongly attached are you to the idea of of this particular change and and that's that's an important thing to to listen for and maybe even to end on as a as an encounter wraps up hmm. and maybe maybe now would be a good time for us to try and model some of what what it is we've been talking about for, for this in the last uh, podcast is, you know, I need your help, you know? Um, right, and let's do it. Yeah, so what we've, what we've decided is, is that I am going to be uh, an individual who's just been to see his physician, his GP, and his GP has encouraged me to step down to see you, and you're going to be counseling me on stopping smoking. Now, mm -hmm. At this point, stopping smoking is not high on my priority. But so I'm a relu I'm reluctant, but mm -hmm. have agreed to come and see you. Right. Ho hopefully, it's something that would resonate with the listeners, whether it's smoking or any other 
uh, any other helping conversation. Okay, well, hello, Glenn. Hi. It's nice to it's nice to see you. I know this is our first time meeting today, but uh, Dr. Jones felt uh, it was important for you to, to come and, and chat with me a bit. So maybe you can tell me a bit more about about that. Yeah, well, I, I was up, but I don't, to be honest, I'm not really quite sure why why he thinks I need to come and see. You. I was up saying I have a pain in my chest, and he asked me to smoke again. And I says, yes, again. And uh, he says that it should come down to you because he thinks I should stop smoking again. Mm, this isn't the first time you've heard that. No, no. I hear from mm. him every time I go and see him about anything. He always asks me to smoke. Yes, tells me to stop. I know. My wife, she tells me to stop. I suppose you're mm. going to tell me to stop as well. Well, it, and it would make sense that you would you would think that uh, it, it sounds like you get it here every time you come into the clinic, and and perhaps uh, you're getting it in other places as well, like like at home. Yeah. Why don't people just back off? I know I need to stop smoking at some point, but no. Today wasn't about smoking. Today was about a pain in my chest. And here I am down talking to you, you know. Mm. Right. So you had other concerns. You didn't come in to talk about smoking. Uh, you ended up getting there, as you often do. But you came in to, to for some, some help with the chest pain. Yeah. I've, you know, I'm 50 odds now. And, you know, I, I love my running. But recently I've been looking out. I've been getting the pain in my chest. And I suppose enough for me to need to check up an MOT type setup, you know, just to check. So that's what I did come in. It's, I was expecting to get wires on my chest and, you know, from mm. send me to run. I, to be honest, I thought I'd be sent down here and told to run on a machine for 15 minutes to check my heart uh, because mm -hmm. that's that's really what's concerning me is, you know, I don't want to be out running one day and drop dead. Mm-hmm. Right. This this is serious stuff for you. You have some some really significant concerns about where this might lead you. For yeah, you. absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yeah. My kids are still young enough where they need me to be around, and I suppose mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm recognizing that the age I'm at, and I need to be looking after, which is why I'm still running. And uh, you know, I know I'm a bit overweight. You know, and. Um, I suppose the reality is I know that I shouldn't be smoking, but they're hard to quit. You know, I've been at it since I was, was a teenager and everybody, well, not everybody. I know some of my mates have stopped, but um, like when I go out, go out the weekends, part of socializing, part of having a crack is, you know, going out to the beer garden and having a few smokes and catching up with the lads. Yeah, it's it's been a part of your life uh, for for years, and uh, it also sounds like it's it's a part of of really important times for you, so times of connection with with friends. Uh, you have fond memories, and 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 now you've reached a point in your life, in your fifties, uh, you're finding it a bit more difficult to do some of the things that you had done before, like being active. Uh, you have a wife and children and, and, you know, other people that 
care about you, depend on you, and, and perhaps are worried about you. And uh, you're starting to think about things. You, you mentioned your diet and, and, and even with smoking, as much as you, you really don't like all of the nagging and, and sort of pressures to stop, it does sound like you've been thinking about that. Maybe, maybe I need to think about cutting back. Well, that's, that's probably what, you know, the idea of coming in here today and you tell me to stop smoking, that's, there's no, there's no way I can stop smoking. It's, I have, there's been a couple of times where I've cut back a bit, you know, I've stopped a couple of times, but not for very long. And that's, so it's very hard for me just to stop. And I know there's patches and whatever else available, but it's, it's unrealistic for me at this stage, man, to, for you to think that I'm going to walk out of here today as a non-smoker. You know the the best the best thing for me is you know is it it's it's, it's realizing you know if I'm honest with myself and chances are some of the pain in my chest is probably coming from what I'm eating and the fact that I'm smoking and I know the connection. So realistically, it's it's cutting down is the best I can do at the moment, you know and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and cutting down it so. You really, well, one thing is clear, the idea of leaving today and never smoking again seems seems unrealistic for you. And at the same time, cutting back is something that you have, you have some, you're giving some thought to. And, and I wonder why that is. What, what, what is it about cutting back or what is it about your current smoking habits that have you concerned to the point of, of being ready to make at least some change? Like I say, it's you know I get the health promotion messages. You know they're they're on the cigarette packets, they're on the TV, and you know it's 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 more and more difficult to smoke in places. And I get it. Uh, I suppose it's they're getting more and more expensive as well. So probably cutting back would probably save me some money as well. And um, look, I know I, need, I have to stop. I do have to stop. But it's the cutting back is probably. I could, to be honest, if I was to cut back, it's probably my pride, to be honest, to stop me just stopping because she's telling me to stop. And I know if I was, see if I was to come home today and tell her that I stopped smoking, she'd say, didn't I tell you? And uh, I don't want that to happen, you know. Um, mm. I want, I this needs to be my decision, man. And that mm. I think that one of the things I could do is cut back a bit and, you know, I don't think anybody's going to notice a much a lot, but I think it's it would help me get ready for some point in the future when you know I kick them totally. So yeah, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you really thinking through that, and and you, you seem to be somebody who who knows yourself quite well, and and um, and as hard as that would be to uh i suppose acknowledge or admit that change is necessary you're you're willing to to start at least to start thinking about how you might do it and it sounds like you're you're even ready to to begin the journey of cutting back even after you leave today yeah well yeah it's this is this this is to be honest with you. I'm really surprised with what's happening here today because I am actually thinking, you know what, that there's probably four 
four or five cigarettes immediately. I think I smoke every day, and I know it's more out of boredom than than anything else, and it's that I don't actually really want them, and that there's been so many times where I'm about to light up a cigarette and something happens, and I don't I don't miss not having it. Whereas there are cigarettes, the first cigarette in the morning, probably the last cigarette at night, one after my dinner and the one at tea break. Like, I love those cigarettes. And uh, But mm. there's so many in between where I'm, I'm just doing it because they're there. Uh, mm-hmm. And I suppose it's just thinking about what else, what, what, what else would I do if I didn't? And to be honest, mm-hmm. there's a few of them that I don't even have to do anything. I just keep doing what I'm doing. Just not pick the cigarettes up. I'm probably like I'm buying two packs a day. I'm smoking one and a half packs every day. So you know, of a half a pack from today that I bought yesterday, and you know, I I think that there's probably if I only bought one pack, if that that would probably be one thing I could do is see if I could cut down to one pack and just say right, okay, I'm going to smoke one pack in a day, which means then I have to think about the cigarettes I'm going to smoke you know as I think about that that's that's the sort of thing that works for me that you know I'm, I'm working towards something and it's almost like a wee challenge yeah it's, it's there are these challenges and again this idea of you you really kind of knowing yourself well really knowing yourself better than anybody and knowing the things that will tug you in one direction versus another and and so you know your habits quite well. You know the tendencies. You know that there, there's some of the cigarettes that you have in the day are are, are cherished moments or moments that are are you, you really you're not quite ready to give up at this point. But there there are a number of other cigarettes that you have throughout the day that are done not out of need or out of desire, but really just out of boredom. And, and, and those might be a reasonable place to start. Hmm. Yeah, that does that. You know what? That makes I can, that makes sense to me. That I'm really, again, I'm really surprised, man, that you haven't just told me that you're going to give me patches and I should leave and get get on with it. You know, this has been really surprising for me. Come in here, I was ready for a row, and mm-hmm. well, you, you've been used to to people telling you what to do. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's surprising that that you aren't. Oh. Um, well, so I, I appreciate our time to, uh, together today. I, I feel like you've been in, in a really quick amount of time, although it sounds like you've been thinking about this for some time as well. But, but in just a, a fairly brief conversation, it, you've, you've managed to, to think carefully about the times of day where, you know, you don't really need a cigarette. And, and, and then even starting to think about the quantity or the, the where you'd like to to what you'd like to shoot for going from a pack and a half to a pack a day and that seems like a a reasonable first step for you and i wonder what you think about maybe coming back to see me not necessarily seeing dr jones but coming back to see me in the clinic and and maybe two weeks time and and we can um have more of a discussion and just kind of see what kind of progress you've been making Hmm. yeah well you know what that might be helpful right now, it's, yeah, I just come back and just tell you how I'm getting on and see what happens. Right, and and 
you know, at that point, we can, well, of course, we see where where you are with your smoking and how things are going with it. We can, if, if of course, if you're interested, we could discuss a next step uh, if you hadn't already done so. I mean, some people come back and see me after two weeks and they've even surpassed the goals that they set in our, in our first discussion. And mm. so that's certainly a, a possibility. But, um, you know, you had mentioned things like patches and chewing gum and sort of replacements. You know, that's something that we offer here in the clinic. But of course, that's only something that will be useful for you if, if you're open to it, if you're interested mm. in it. And if you come in in two weeks and, and that's something you'd like to explore or you want to find out more about those options, we can discuss those as well. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm definitely not, I'm, I definitely want to change on with the patches at the moment. It's, I think what's what's going to be, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and stick to one pack a day. And uh, yeah, well, yeah, but you know what? It's 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 helpful to know that you're here and that um, I'll yeah I could come back in two weeks and and do something and see just tell you how I get on and see what happens if that's all right. Sounds good to me. Sounds great. Right. So I just give you a ring and come in then. Well, we what we do is you just go to the to the front desk where you checked in and and just let them know you you want to follow up appointment with me in, in two weeks and they'll set you up. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for not shooting at me. <laughs> Very good. That was, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Okay. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks, Mr. Nice guy. <laughs> sure thing. Yeah. So uh, as you know, we're back out, we're out of role now yeah. and just wondering though, for you, Glenn, what, what, was that experience like for you as, as the playing the client? Yeah, well, I was, I was genuinely trying to put myself into his into his shoes. Obviously, I was painting a picture as I was going along, and and I recognised how easy it would be just to become the, the client from hell for you, and I was trying mm -hmm. not to do that. But, uh, you know, certainly that the way I felt heard by you was drew me towards you. It, it 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 left me with a space in my own mind where I had, I had to fill in with my own thoughts about you know, what's this about, um, and yeah, getting to that place where it was like yeah okay I could cut down, and for me that's where it felt like this character got to in that session. The idea of going any further than that was just creating a resistance. Don't be pushing me any further than this. Mm -hmm. Cutting down is a big deal. Um, yes. But a cutting down was in the picture. Definitely. Mm. Right. Yeah, it. it's... Uh, and, you know, I'm just trying to imagine what a listener to this episode is, is thinking or experiencing. And, um, you know, certainly there are people that would... would would say, well, that happened too quickly, or you know, that's that was that's not what happens in my job, or and uh, sure, uh, yeah. Like yeah, so, we said, so, so what, I suppose one of the things then to consider for people to consider is less about the specific content and detail and outcome, but to pay attention maybe to what it was you were doing in relation yeah, to how yeah. I was being, right? 
and to listen and to the motivational interviewing skills that you were using was the was what we described as the spirit was it present there how was Seb being to this guy yes you know how was he responding to you know the talk about his wife talk about the doctor talk about his own feelings talk about you know just notice what it was you were doing and how does exactly. that fit with the what we've been talking about for the previous two podcasts yeah, and and, uh, and and I'll share some just some reflections on the exchange from my own recollection here, and and just how it fits with some of the pieces we've discussed so far in these first two episodes. Uh, I felt that it was very important for me to, as part of the engagement process, to acknowledge the frustration that the client felt being told what to do and asked about smoking. Every single time the client came to see the doctor, frequently at home, and um, while that's so that that speaks to a, an important decision point, I, I suppose for an MRI practitioner is how much do we reflect and perhaps even invite some more discussion about not change, you know, like ref, a reflection about the frustration of people nagging him about smoking, you know, would, would likely lead to the, the client to talk more about how sick they are of people telling them to stop smoking. And, mm-hmm. and some people might, might think, well, you know, is that the direction we really want to go in? That's not really inviting change talk. That's not exploring the reasons not to smoke. And, you know, that it is one of those, those ways that MI has some flexibility and, and it's not solely about change talk at the expense of everything else that's happening in the room. It just felt very important at that early part of the encounter to just acknowledge that I hear you. I'm hearing what you're saying, that this has been a frustrating experience today, and this is not the first thing that's happened. And that to do that is a way to very quickly have the patient on board, at least on board with the conversation, not necessarily on board with with cutting back on smoking or quitting yet, but certainly with being more on board with having a conversation about it. So the engaging of the processes. So I felt heard by you without you trying to explain to me why my wife was nagging me. You didn't take yeah. her side. You stayed with no. me. And that, yes. that that was different. Right. Exactly. Mm. And it was a reflection of, of your wife nagging. It was a reflection of Dr. Jones nagging. And it also wasn't me saying, you know what, they have a right to nag. Mm. It, it, it was those are two very different and you know in thinking about focusing i i was in my head i was thinking to myself well okay here's a, a couple of things coming up there's smoking obviously there are these chest pains there's diet which you brought up as well and and i <clears throat> i was considering asking a more explicit question about where how you would like to use our time mm. and i decided against it i, I can't remember the exact exchange but it was clear that you made a shift from the discussion of your age and and your kids and the diet and all that and it it was quite clear that you you had decided already the focus was going to be about how might i cut back you know you talked about the pride issue and telling your your wife and all that or not telling your wife but it, it was it was very clear to me that you had made that shift the focus had been established and I just made the decision in the moment not to explicitly say, how would you like to use our time? 
uh, or, or something of that nature. I, I felt like I, I could have just jumped quickly onto the, to the plan that you had started crafting about cutting back from half a pack, one, you know, one and a half packs to a pack. Uh, I, I really did want to hear a little bit more though about why you would want to make the change. Mm -hmm. I think that's worthwhile time spent. Uh, I think a lot of times practitioners, when we hear clients say sort of the right answer, so to speak, we tend to gloss over that or tend to just say, okay, great, right, let's, let's move on. And, and I think it is important to spend just a moment and say, why would you do that? Why would you cut back? Why would you stop doing this or stop doing that to really further and strengthen the client's motivation to change? And, and as far as the planning process, it, was, it had already been established to an extent. You had already made a passing comment of, about patches and gums and, and that, that was something that you were worried about and, and anticipating what our conversation would have been like. And, and you already had this a fairly well, not, not the most specific plan in the world, but it was specific enough. You had a reduction in quantity. You had these times of day that you had been thinking about already. So it, it just seemed like you were naturally creating your own plan and it wasn't worthwhile to clutter that up with other ideas or suggestions or anything like that. Did, I did leave the door open for further discussion about that if you're interested in our subsequent session though. Mm. Yeah, and, and in some ways it's, it's almost like what you're describing is, is that what was happening in that session was I was deciding to begin to pack my bags before I started to leave whereas the plan would have been how to get to where I was going. So still gathering my ideas together and that, that the structured part of it was that you offered me the opportunity to come back, again, give me information about what other choices I might have in the future. Um, but again, there was no pressure on when you, when you come back in two weeks' time, you'll only have smoked one pack a day. It's a case of we'll see how you're getting on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that flexibility without... That the expectation that was being created was being created by me, the patient. It was me that was saying I would be smoking twenty a day, rather than yeah. you tell me that that's what I should be doing. And uh, yeah. and I think that was different for me for the patient, and um, it leaves it with me that it's I'm working towards my own goal at this point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So and- so I'm just conscious that you know there's so much there's so much more we could continue to do and explore what we just had in that conversation and maybe that's something for for listeners to consider thinking about what did you hear and what questions did that create for you that you might want us to reflect on and again invitations for people to think about the sessions that are coming up the working with compassion looking at rajayan work we've we've also now confirmed dd stout who's going to talk to us about trauma-informed practice so let us know what you think. Give us some questions that you might want us to answer. Just say hello. And we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. And we will speak to you very soon. Thanks, sir. Okay. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>